This podcast, You Are What You Read, is brought to you by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a monthly subscription service that allows you to curate your own original box of books each month from a selection of hundreds of bestsellers. Book of the Month features diverse and current titles for all readers, and they make their subscription options easy and flexible so you can spend less time researching and more time reading. Behind on your reading list? Skip the monthly selection and use a credit for a book the following month. Prefer to listen to titles when you're on the go? Opt for an audiobook. Book of the Month has a reading experience tailored just for you. If you're already reading most Book of the Month titles, try a membership in 2024. And because you're a listener here at You Are What You Read, you can head to bookofthemonth.com to get your first book for just $9.99. That's right, $9.99. Just use code ADRI at checkout. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Happy reading. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome you to this week's episode of You Are What You Read, because we're joined by the number one most influential rabbi in the United States, Rabbi Sharon Browse. Her book is being tucked in more backpacks, purses, and briefcases, and sometimes people are just grabbing it off the shelf and running in a corner and reading it. The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I want to tell you a little bit about Sharon. She's the founding and senior rabbi of ECAR, a trailblazing Jewish community based in Los Angeles. For 20 years, ECAR has grown into a diverse, dynamic, multi-generational community of faith. And if you'd like to see her give a TED Talk, it's magnificent. It's called Reclaiming Religion, and it has been viewed over 1.5 million times. Her most recent book, The Amen Effect, Sharon makes the case that in an era of loneliness and disconnection, I mean, think about it, folks, the phones. I mean, we're, we're all on our own little islands, right? Her treatise is that our deepest spiritual work is finding our way to one another. We can reawaken our humanity by building relationships of care, curiosity, and love. And all of these are the building blocks of faith. We're going to begin our conversation with the books that Sharon first read as a child and what she remembers from her childhood. So I want to take you back to when you were a little girl. Mm. And I want to know what was read to you and what book you first remember is really having an effect on you. Well, I grew up in a, in a town where they were actually experimenting with a new methodology of reading, which was phonetic reading where they wrote entire libraries in this phonetic format. Did you do that too? Hooked hooked on phonics. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, it was like ITA or something. I remember phonics, and it made me a good speller. Did it make you a good speller? It made me a terrible speller, but a great reader. Because because I learned in kindergarten, I would read novels because they were it was so easy. I didn't have any challenge trying to figure out how to sound out the words. And so I just fell in love with reading, and I would tear through books. And then we moved when I was in second grade and I had to learn how to spell the proper way and how to, you know, the, 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 the traditional way. 
joy and then that was a bit rocky for for a hot minute but i already had in me this love of storytelling and so I really, I always have loved books and I love, I love touching books. I love kind of holding them in my hands and turning pages and highlighting books and putting stickers in them and underlining. Um, but I, I mean, I, since, since my earliest days, books were like my best friends. I mean, well, when you were, when you would go for a book or what, what's a book you read a lot? What book stayed with you? What story? Was it Heidi? Uh, Heidi's a good novel. Did you read that? I read, I mean, the Judy Bloom books I remember from, they were well, big Judy in my Bloom, childhood. Fantastic, fantastic. Judy Bloom, right. Great so Judy the, Bloom. So there were books like that that I remember just reading over and over and over, and we would pass them. All the friends would, you know, sort of share these books with one another. And then at some point I started reading novels that just lived so deeply in my in my soul. And I still, are we Are we talking Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights? I'm talking about, I, I mean, I remember... I remember reading Stones from the River. Do you mm-hmm. remember, do you read that book? And I uh-huh. just like it gave me this totally different perspective on life. And I thought, God, it's a window into a world that I do not know. And years later, I heard Angie Thomas um, speak about um, about the power of a book to transport a person into a different kind of reality. And I remember that she said that a good book can be either a mirror, a window, or a door. Wow, And it can either help you see yourself differently than you ever did before. It can give you a window into a world you didn't understand before, or it can actually open a door and help be an entree for you into a different kind of reality. And she said she tried to make her book all three of those things. And I was cognizant of that as I was writing this book. And, you know, usually we think that way about novels, but I think good nonfiction can do that for us also. And a good sermon by the way, which, you know, this book is sort of rooted in the sermon format. A good sermon can do that too. It should help us reflect on ourselves more deeply. It can give us a window into a reality that we were not thinking about before that helps us understand the world. And ultimately it can, and it should transport us into a a different kind of living that we live differently because we've been so touched by what we've heard or what we've read. So for me that I always, I'm always cognizant of that when I'm as a reader and now also as a writer. When you were growing up, little girls didn't become rabbis, did they? (laughs) No, not really. I really wanted to be. This, This is really astonishing to me. I have to tell you, I, you talk about a leap of faith. Um, if they opened up my church doors tomorrow and said, okay, ladies, who wants to be a priest? I'd be in the back of the line. <laughs> I, I, but of course, that's, that, that has nothing to do with your brilliance and your magnificence and your spirituality and your soulfulness. It's just that it's a leap of faith because you yeah. not only have to assume the job in terms of what you know has to be done, what's typically done in a community, but you also have to invent it from a different mm. lens. Yes. And that's yes. what your book did for me, was it reminded me that sometimes you just have to just move it, just move that lens a little bit and then just refocus it and mm. you see the world in a different way mm-hmm. and you see it in a more profound and deep way. Why would the, so- why is it important to feed our souls and to work with our souls on a daily basis? Mm. Wow. That is a beautiful question. Um, first, let me just say the book is rooted in Jewish wisdom, but it's not in, it's not intended for a Jewish 
audience. It's intended for a broad audience. What I have seen in the last 20 years as a rabbi who grew up wanting to be a civil rights attorney because I felt like the world was broken and I wanted to try to fix it through the law and ultimately recognize that we had, that we need to have great, great lawyers and great, you know, real policy change. But what we need is to address the spiritual crisis, which is people are breaking. We are breaking from the loneliness, Mm -hmm. social alienation, isolation and extreme polarization and division. And it's breaking our spirit and it's breaking our democracy. And so what we need is to nourish the soul. We need to be, and and this is why I love that the book is rooted in ancient wisdom. Mm -hmm. The centerpiece of the book is one particular ancient ritual that's been my North Star for the last 20 plus years that literally calls us into relationships of compassion and curiosity precisely at the moment that our instinct is to retreat from the other and to dig in and to, you know, and only to look at the other with scorn and with hurt, instead to meet sorrow with sorrow, to meet vulnerability with vulnerability and begin to heal. And I love that you're talking about the golden thread because on the cover of the book, I don't know if you noticed this, but the the image on the cover of the book, yeah, it's a stitch and it's rooted in this in a, in one of the practices that comes from our mourning tradition, which is when Jews um, lose someone they, in their immediate family, we tear a garment and we walk around all torn up for a week, for the whole week of the most intense period of mourning. Anyone who looks at you says that person's all torn up. And the idea is we are externalizing the inner anguish that we're feeling. We're not going to pretend we're okay when we're not okay, which is one of the themes of the book. But the, but our rabbis were very practical people. And they said in the Middle Ages, well, what if you only have a couple shirts? You're never going to wear, you're going to wear a torn up shirt to work, you know, a year after the death or two years later. So they said, no, you can start to stitch it up, but with a thread of a different color and a rough thread. So anyone who gets sort of close to you says that's a person who was all torn up, but is on the path to healing. Wow. That's, and, that's, that's amazing. Profound. And, because, and then at some point that thread makes the garment even stronger than it was before because you've been through something traumatizing and difficult and painful. And now you're even, you're even better than you, than you, in some cases you could be even stronger than you were. So I think what we need in this time that's so fraught and so full of sorrow and anguish and fear and division is to begin to figure out how we can pull together the frayed edges and thread, thread this needle so that we can begin to, to, so that we can begin to create something that's new and different and, and stronger even than, than what it was before. But also without denying what the garment was in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. That's your, that's your tradition. That's your, uh, that, that, that was your cloak. That was your armor in a sense. And now you're asking us or inviting us, Rabbi, to reinvent. Mm-hmm. To reinvent anew with the knowledge we have now. Now, let's take a look at the world right now. Let's just take that beautiful lens of yours and just shift it to the world. People have never been more lonely mm-hmm. than they are right now. The one place where I'm never, ever lonely is when I'm reading. Oh. Reading, I'm in a world with characters, mm-hmm. and I am observing them. I'm not being judged. I'm not being uh, told to think something. I'm not being told to behave a certain way or dress a certain way. I'm in their world. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain largesse that comes with entering someone's world, isn't there? Yes. Yes. When you enter someone's world, 
you're asking or the world is asking you to join them mm. as opposed to get out. You don't fit in here. Mm -hmm. So a book never disappoints in that manner. You're part of it. There's connectivity. Look at the tools we have for connecting today. How many tools? That phone. I hate that phone. I hate that phone. Rabbi Sharon, I hate it. But I need it. Mm. I need it now because everything from your insurance to your doctor to tracking your children is on that phone. Right. Our children. So, so we use the phone. We, but we were never invited to use the phone. We were forced. Mm. Your book, The Amen Effect, was an invitation to get under the surface of all the nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's an invitation to say, okay, the world has a lot of glittering, shining things going on. But what's happening in the most important place in you, your soul? What are you about? Who are you and why are you here? And how... Does addressing that essential question help us lock arms? Could you please answer that? You did in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the questions that so many people have come to talk to me about in my 20 years of pastoring to this community is I don't even know what my purpose is in the world. And I think a sense of purposelessness contributes to a sense of loneliness, right? Yes. I, I feel detached. And and by the way, this is important not only because this sense of detachment, disconnection, isolation, loneliness is hurting our bodies. And as the Surgeon General and others have now demonstrated for us that loneliness is the equivalent of, of smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of its impact on our bodies. What we need to do is find ourselves in proximity with other human beings so that we can see their humanity and they can see ours. And sometimes these devices, which ostensibly were created in order to help establish those connections, end up doing exactly the opposite. They make us distant from, you know, from, from everyone. I mean, it's like you see all the time in restaurants, the whole family sitting together in the restaurant and everybody's on their own phone. And so they're actually detaching from one another. And so I think I want to share the framework that's really the heart, at the heart of the book, because I think it gives us a visual. There's kind of a model that might help us here. So this is an ancient ritual um, that that it comes from the Mishnah, which is an ancient Jewish code of law, and it's about the practice of pilgrimage in Jerusalem. And so what would happen 2,000 years ago is that um, hundreds of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem. They would ascend to Jerusalem, which is on a hill from all over the land and the diaspora. They would all come up together and these Jewish pilgrims would climb up the steps of the Temple Mount. They would enter under the beautiful arched entryway. They would turn to the right and they would circle around the courtyard, hundreds of thousands of people en masse. And I always imagine the Hajj when I'm envisioning what this ritual must have looked and felt like, mm -hmm. just being swept up in this massive of humanity in sacred service, except the text says for someone with a broken heart, that person would go up to Jerusalem, climb the steps and go through the same entryway, but turn to the left when everyone else turned to the right. Their entire being is going in the opposite direction with all of humanity in that moment. Mm -hmm. And every person who would pass somebody who's walking in the direction of the brokenhearted would have to stop and see them and ask them a simple question. What happened to you? How was your heart? Oh. And then the person would answer saying, my father just died. I'm worried about my kid. My partner left and I feel totally blindsided. And then the people walking from right to left would simply give them a blessing 
May you be held in the embrace of community. May may the Holy One guide you through this difficult time. May you find strength and resilience. And then they'd go on and that's it. And I just realized when I encountered this ritual after pastoring to the community for a decade or so and marrying people and burying people and, you know, naming babies and all the things that the ritual was calling these parties into an encounter that neither of them wanted to have instinctively because the people who are not okay, the bereaved and the bereft and the ill want to pull away from community. We don't want to get up and show up in this giant room full of people where we have to pretend that we're fine. But instead it says you show up anyway, but you don't pretend you're fine. You're not fine. You, you tear your garment. You walk in the opposite direction, right? And the people who are okay in this moment, who happen to be walking along with the community of people, they don't want to take a look and see the brokenhearted person and wonder, what's your anguish? What's going on with you? Instead, they want to avoid that person because they're in this peak spiritual moment of their lives. But the text says, no, you see that person in her pain, in her Well, humanity. look what the text does. The text says, okay, you, we're okay, but we're going to single out in the opposite direction those that need us most. Yes. Yes. What a beautiful, I mean, right there, you've just, you've just, you've called community what it should be. Yes. Which is empathy. I That's see right. your pain. That's right. I understand it. Hey, maybe I even have it. I've lived it. So maybe I can be of some help to you. That's that right. is, but this is ancient. I want yes. the listeners to really hear that. This is ancient. This is centuries and centuries and centuries ago. People had no way of communicating except to walk a right. thousand miles to visit their Aunt Edna <laughs> and stay over and go to the temple. And they figured it out. Right. Right. But what do we do? What do we do? We put our eyes down. How about right. the how about the kids now? They don't even make eye contact with you. Now I always say eye contact has always been difficult for teenagers as we were teenagers once. You know, what do we want to look at grown ups? Who are they? But this has made it worse because now they can communicate over here mm -hmm. in this divisive way. Right. Right. And but Rabbi, what would you do to what would you do to make social media more uh, ancient from 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 the ancient text what would you do to fix that in a culture look we i mean well first i'll just tell you a story which is you know because of these devices we don't have to really encounter one another at all so we know that we're lonely and we need and yearn for those connections but we can also very easily avoid them but a friend told me the other day that he was sitting on the subway in new york reading the book and he was crying and he said that a stranger came over to him and said, hey, are you okay? And it was like exactly what's supposed to be happening. And so one thing is just actually allowing ourselves to see who's sitting next to us and to, to have contact with people and to turn to them in compassion and in curiosity. And so the eighth chapter of the book is really about what happens when the people that we are encountering are not the brokenhearted and the vulnerable who we have lots of good excuses for not encountering. Their vulnerability makes us feel vulnerable. Their pain destabilizes us. We think we'll say the wrong words. We think they don't need our presence. The answer is you show up, just show up with love. And that's for the brokenhearted. But what about the people who aren't brokenhearted they actually hold views or have engaged in behavior and practices that are really hurtful 
and might even hurt not only me as an individual, but the broader social fabric, do we also have to see them? And so the eighth chapter of the book kind of looks at the broader mm-hmm, scope of mm-hmm. things, which is who there are certainly some people whose very presence is so violent or toxic or dangerous that even having them in that courtyard, that, you know, the metaphorical courtyard makes it unsafe for others. But there are a lot of people whose views just differ from ours and it hurts us to hear them. And so we avoid them. But actually what we have to learn to do is look to them with curiosity and say that that we can also meet their sorrow in our own sorrow that often those people are nursing their own broken hearts. And and while we may disagree on the outer margins of our views, there's probably a lot of overlap on, on the pain that they're experiencing that we also experience and on the yearning that they have that we might also share. Because I really believe that at the end of the day, most human beings just want to put their kids to bed safely at night. They just want to not live in fear They just want to have their dignity honored. They want to build relationships where they can love deeply and be loved deeply. They want to be seen in this world. And that is something that we actually can offer one another. You call it, you call it something that's so beautiful. You invented this word. It's called bear withness. I did not invent this word, but I love this idea. I so, love the idea to talk about that because I thought that that's when I cried in the book. Oh, everybody has a, a point where they weep, <laughs> but I weep there because because what you said to us in this book, or what you what you impart to us so beautifully, is the powers within you. Yeah, the powers within you to reach out. You are not a stone. Yes, you're not a rock. You're not a wall. Yes. You're a malleable sponge of a person with feelings and the ability to touch, reach, and make make the empathy textural and real. Yes. So I, I let's talk about withness. So Yes, please. In the beginning of the book, I share that the very first thing that we the, the first time in the Hebrew Bible that anything is considered not good is on this is on the sixth day of creation. So each day of creation, God stops creating and says, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's very good. And then the first thing that's not good, it says, it's not good for a person to be alone, to be fundamentally alone in the world. So God creates for that first creature, um, for Adam, God creates a partner to be his Ezer Konegdo, someone who will help him by sitting opposite him. And, and, and to, to challenge him, to, to support him, to be by his side. Now, the rabbis tell this story that at the end of the sixth day, after that happened, after Eve was created, the sun starts to set. And it's, it's the first day that human beings have been alive. So they've never seen a sunset before. Adam starts to get very scared when it gets dark. And the darker the night goes, the more he's freaking out. He starts to wail and weep and scream. And he says, oh my God, the world is ending. Is it my fault? What did I do? And Eve just comes over and sits across from him and weeps with him and holds him all night long. It's an incredibly tender ancient text. And I think it raises for us this core question of who will weep with you in the dark of night? because we all have the dark night of the soul, right? Who will be by our side and weep with us through the dark? We think in our culture and in our society that our job is to fix one another, 
but that's not our job. I mean, if you're a doctor, that might be your job. If you can fix the pain. If you're a mechanic. If you're, if you're a mechanic, mechanic fix the Or car. you're in construction. <laughs> that's right. But we, as people support supporting friends and supporting family members, we can't make the pain go away, but we can sit with one another in the pain. And I learned this first from a friend whose son died very tragically in a freak accident. And his son was this incredibly brilliant, gorgeous young human being who had really just been launched into the world. He was a sophomore in college. And it was a horrific tragedy. And that kind of loss really destabilizes people. Mm-hmm. And so and in, an, in an act that seems like an act of love, but might be a little bit narcissistic, lots of friends came forward trying to help the bereaved parents feel okay again. And I say narcissistic because what's really happening is the f- supporting friends feel uncomfortable around that kind of loss. So they want to know that the parent can be okay again. And the father said to me, I don't want people to fix me. I just want them to be with me. I don't want to stop crying. I want somebody to sit with me while I weep. And I realized he was expressing this yearning that the rabbis, the rabbis offer us 16, 1700 years ago. They have this insight into the human psychology, into the human condition, understanding that what we need is not to be okay. We need someone to meet us in the not okay. We need someone to meet us in the grief and to bear witness, to just be by our side as long as that darkness lasts. And there are a number of stories, modern day and ancient, that I include in that chapter to kind of elaborate on what that looks like. Yes, I love I love those stories. And I love the fact that you do this too, Rabbi. You take off the onus of this idea that a romantic partner is the person that abides with you, saves you, and weeps with you. Because let's face it, 50%, well, let's just talk about America. Half the relationships don't work out. The average age of the American widow is 57. Well, we live a lot longer than 57, right? So there's a, there's a, you're talking about an agony that's going Mm -hmm. on here Mm -hmm. where people feel excluded just by the nature of the way life plays out. There's nobody to weep with them. You know, if you have somebody single in your family, you know, you have a deep empathy for that because they're looking at you thinking you got it made and you're looking at them thinking, I got to, I got to help them. I've got to be present for them. So you're saying that that's a little on the narcissistic side. What you should be saying is not to make things better and, and, and spackle over the pain, but bear witness through the pain with them. That's right. And it's and what's really interesting is how much it does not necessarily align with marriage or romantic partnership. Oh, speak to that, please. Well, there are people who are in marriages for 20, 30, 40 years, and they're the loneliest people alive. Being in a bad marriage can be far lonelier than being unmarried, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really about investing in relationships of mutual care and concern, someone who worries for you and who you worry for, someone who who um who celebrates the joyous moments with you and with whom you really your heart soars when something good happens to them and relationships of of um of shared vision relationships of shared purpose where together you share a vision of what 
this new after-school project could look like that you're working on to help the children of your community, or you share a vision of what America could look like if we're able to harness the right kind of forces to build a just society. So this is from actually from Rambam Maimonides, the great medieval scholar, but he says that they're all different kinds of relationships and utilitarian relationships, which we all have. The utilitarian relationships are the weakest because they fade as soon as the utility is gone. So hunger or lust for a person is a utility, it's a utilitarian need. As soon as that need is filled, my relationship is no longer necessary, but relationships of mutual care and concern and relationships of, of shared purpose can be life sustaining. That's not where all marriages sit. So I think it's not about marriage or romantic partnership. It's about the kinds of relationships that we root in. Can you root in relationships of deep care and of shared purpose? Because at the intersection of those two is where the real, sus the real spiritual and emotional sustenance comes from. So you're telling us, in a sense, or sharing with us or encouraging us to look at what relationships are building your soul. What's required of you? What's required of your heart in these relationships? Are you putting your heart on the line in a certain sense? And are you really digging deep, as deep as you possibly can for this person that needs you and you need them? And letting them, letting them see you too, right? There's, I speak in one of the chapters about the healers, about the people who either by nature or by um, profession are always on the side of keeping eyes out for those who are hurting and taking care of them. What happens when they themselves are in need? Are they able oh, wow. to be met? Yeah. And one of the ideas here that I'm so moved by is actually comes from a Catholic theologian, Henry Nguyen, who writes about the fellowship of about the the fellowship of suffering about the shared vulnerability in our acknowledgement that I, I i can see your pain it's different from the pain i've experienced but my pain helps open my heart to the experience of suffering and will make me a better friend and better support of you while you're experiencing your suffering so suffering is how we empathize with one another and when we empathize with one another we love is that is that the root of this? I think that's exactly right. And and I think that trauma, fear, and acute grief, those three things pull us away from one another when actually those things can also awaken in us a kind of empathic response toward the other. I know and have learned from friends who are professors of psychology that we need social safety in order to really feel empathy towards someone because if we feel under attack and besieged, it's very hard to open our heart to others. And the experience of that vulnerability can awaken us to a sensitivity toward other people who feel similarly vulnerable. And that's a very powerful way to find our way to each other. So I share in the story, one particular story, one, one I share in the book, a story of one incredible teacher of mine who is a bereaved mother whose daughter died. I, in, if you remember from the book, she, her daughter looked like me. We looked a lot alike. And I was a young rabbi and she was a college student. We were just a couple of years apart and when I actually walked into the house of mourning, people gasped because we look so much alike. And I was there to serve the bereaved and to hold the service. But it it was very jarring for people because they actually thought it was it was as if she had walked in the door for a moment. Wow. But in that moment, something 
incredible happened. And I was just a brand new rabbi. This was actually my first house of mourning that I went to as a clergy member. I remember that this, that the mother who was just completely inconsolably devastated was sitting and all of her friends and loved ones were around her and nobody could reach her. And I was standing by her side and I witnessed a stranger walk through the door, look around, pinpoint this mourner and walked right over to her and introduced herself and said, I read about your loss in the paper. I lost my child a few years ago. This is a hellscape ahead of you, but you're going to survive this. And I, I know that you will survive. And one day from the other side of this loss, you will give great comfort to bereaved parents. And the two women then just held and cried. They held one another and cried. I witnessed it. That is a fellowship of suffering. That is when we're able to, our own pain, our own sense of loss ends up awakening us to the condition of human suffering and allows us to be of service mm. to one another in a way that not only helped that bereaved mother who was in the acute suffering, but also helped this mother who had suffered a loss years ago now take on a different sense of purpose in the world. And I've seen that again and again and again, the breast cancer survivors who immediately embrace somebody with a new diagnosis and say, come to us, honey, we've got you. We're going to share our resources. We're going to support you. We're going to build circles around you of love and care. That this is an act of service and an act of love that when we meet vulnerability with vulnerability, when we meet sorrow with sorrow, we're actually able to build containers of love that can hold us through the most difficult moments of our lives. One of the things that was a revelation to me when I read The Amen Effect was I was taught first that you only know God through suffering. But what I realized as I was reading your book was, no, it's the other way around. Through each other, we meet God. Through each other, through our suffering, we meet each other and we meet God there. It isn't that God wants us to suffer. It's it's almost as if when I came away from this book, I felt, oh, now I get why God created the earth with people. I get it now. He wanted us to work it out. Mm. He wanted us to find him, her, the, the deity. It wasn't it wasn't that. God would change us, which of course he can, he can transform anything, but we were to do the work. We were to do the work. Yeah. Look at the gifts I'm giving you, figure it out, kids, mm -hmm. figure it out. And the grief aspect is so, you know, everybody has uh, a story, right? That That is the thing that turned the key of making them want to either, like you, become a rabbi or become a writer or become a train conductor or a football player or a doctor or whatever you want to become, right? What's so interesting to me about your book is that you have a very, very clear purpose. You just show up to serve. 
How can I be of service? As opposed to saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. Of course you are. You say, what can I do for you? Even better than what can I do for you? Because I think that I love what you're saying. I love this. You show up to serve. And even better than what can I do for you? I I'm in Trader Joe's. What would you like me to pick up for you? Right. <laughs> because I, f- I found often with, with people who are in moments of crisis, when the loving community says, let me know if you need anything, then it puts the burden on the person who's already burdened. So instead, like, I just left some fresh fruit outside for you. You know, hope I left you, I left you a bowl, a bowl of soup outside. So I think that, you know, this is about how can we show up for one another in service? And how does that rehumanize the other and rehumanize us, right? And now let's add just even one more dimension to this. How can we show up not only in grief and in suffering, but also in joy? And this is where, I mean, this comes from my grandma. I learned this from my grandma, Millie, who was such a kick and you would have absolutely loved her. I could see the two of you just having the best time. So grandma Millie always said, you just show up for the simcha in Hebrew, you show up for the celebration. You just show up. If you're like, ah, I don't know. Do I have to go to the wedding? It's expensive. It's far away. Do I have to go to the bat mitzvah? She's like, you show up for the bat mitzvah because if God forbid it was a funeral, you would make your way there for the tragedy. So you better show up for the, for the joy also. And I realized at some point that, yeah, not everyone would necessarily show up for the funeral either. We have to do both. We actually have to know how to show up for each other in these moments. And I suspect that every one of us has moments where we've celebrated, you know, you, you got an article published, you fell in love, you, you know, something, you graduated, something of significance happens, you got a promotion. And the experience of sharing that joy with another person is, has, in, can even have a greater impact on your well being than even the joy in the first place. Meaning when we share our joy, the impact is reverberative. And we know in those moments of both joy and pain, who showed up and who did not show up. And so the message is just make sure you're there next time. Just err on the side of presence. Just get there. Just get to the birthday dinner, get to the funeral, get to the house of mourning because it actually, and get to the moments in between. Those big moments will train our hearts so that we know how to show up in the small moments too. Because ultimately life is precious and precarious and we never know how long any of us has here. So let's just show up. But Grandma Millie is making, Bubba Millie, she's making a great point here. Yeah. Which is, it is the collective, consistent, and I'm going to use that word consistent, Yeah. act of showing up for everything, everything you can. Yes. Everything that builds your soul. Just say yes, as it says right behind your head. Well, that's the history that your soul knows. Yeah. Because those are mitzvahs, right? Those are, those are acts of kindness and beauty, and they will sustain you. And it helps you to know what to say to people, too. I love yes. that about the book. You know, people struggle. What am I going to say? What, what do you mean, what are you going to say? Just going to hold her hands, take her in your arms and go, I get it. I understand. I'm with you. I, and I love you. I'm right here. I'm not, I'm not running away from your pain. I'm not running away. And yeah, I think that is, I think that's exactly right. Well, people act like pain is contagious. Yes. Loss yes. is contagious. Like, oh my gosh, you died. Uh, you, your mother died. I, I don't want to be near you or whatever right. it would be. Right. Right. 
Right. right. Divorce is contagious. Mm-hmm. Illness, right? We, we think that cancer is contagious. I don't want to get too close to the reality of how close we all are to the edge, but let me just say, to take the mystery out of it, we are all that close to the edge. Any one of us could die tomorrow. That is the key message of the High Holy Days in the Jewish tradition. You could be dead tomorrow. So what are you doing with your life right now? And actually, it sounds very morbid and very depressing, but it's not. It's actually mm-hmm. enlivening. And I say in the book that Yom Kippur is my favorite day of the year. It is the most exhilarating day of the year mm-hmm. because what we realize on that day is, I might not be alive tomorrow, but I am alive today. So who can I love? Who can I embrace? How can I be in this world in the most wholehearted possible way for every single day that I have? Because I don't know how long I have. And that's a, that, that is a message that people who are dying often receive at the end. But can we take that message when we're, when we're not actively dying, when we're just going about our business and stressed out about work and deadlines and kids and traffic and all the things, can we take that, that spiritual message seriously? So to go all the way back to the beginning, you said, why does the soul need to be nourished? Right. And this is why, because we forget that we're human beings with human hearts that need to be, that need to be nourished, that need to be reminded of our humanity and that need to be enlivened through acts of love. And I absolutely believe that for many of us, that is how we feel the presence of the divine in this world. And for people who are atheist and don't believe that God exists, the acts of love still enliven us and help us find our way to each other in the most meaningful possible way. Okay, but now I have to. We have to let the the listeners know that you that you are a rabbi in Los Angeles, right? Yes, in the heart of show business, which I think you know I love dearly, and I and I have many many friends in Los Angeles, and I love Los Angeles. How do you bring these tenets of faith of ancient wisdom to a business? That is so, in my opinion, it's brutal. It's a Mm. brutal, you're too short, you're too tall. That sentence wasn't written well enough. I'm giving the job to this one. I'm giving, how do you shore up that community? Which truly, to me, it's the center of all storytelling in the world, right? Because we make movies and we make television shows. How do you live in that environment where it's not about the soul, it's about the box office numbers. It's about popularity. It's about youth. It's about, and I'm saying this in general terms, okay? The folks that are followed on Instagram, you know. Can you speak to that? Because it seems like it's, there's a veneer, almost mm-hmm. like a stage flat. And Rabbi Browse is behind it going, uh, over here, got a little, let's, let's dig a little deep here. Can you speak to that? Yeah, because I think that in some ways, the more entrenched people are in an industry that is very material and very superficial, the more their souls yearn for something that is real and relational and ancient and not timely. Like you're the hot one this minute and then you're going to be, you know, who's coming up right behind you. You're only as good as your last, you know, your, your last gig. That, that kind of temporal success and materiality does not sustain the soul. And the people who are in those spaces still need sustenance for their souls too. And so I've really found this incredible hunger for something that is far older and wiser than any of us, for something that's been around for a really long time, Mm -hmm. that's not 
easy and instantly gratifying, but is actually demands something of us that is a bit harder because it's asking of us. We have to do something. It's not like, you know, it doesn't come to you without you actually striving for it. Well, also, you have to make a commitment to it. I mean, when, when you're a rabbi, you're a teacher. So it, you have to make a commitment to, to the eternal and, and breaking that down for people and helping us understand how we are connected and at the same time trying to give us skills yes. to dig deeper. Now, see, that's what I got from the book, too, is that this is within your grasps, ladies yes. and gentlemen and children. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. I mean, one of the reasons that I put the practice, this is why I put the practices at the end of the book, mm -hmm. because Love that. what I didn't want is for people to hear that, read the book and say, that's a beautiful sermon, right? <laughs> like, thank you. I laughed. I cried. It was nice. That nice, nice abstract idea. I wanted people to say, how can I translate these ideas into my life right now? And mm -hmm. for every chapter, I have a spiritual practice that I, that I take, have taken on that I believe that we can take on that can actually help us live more deeply, more meaningfully and more soulfully. And so they're translation mechanisms for us. And so. I'll just give you one. I mean, the first practice is go to the funeral. Just go. Like we've been talking about. I mean, just show up when you're like, I don't know. I'm busy. I'll have to cancel four meetings. Like, just go. Oh, God. I, I've had people say to me, I don't go to funerals. I right. don't go. Just go to the funeral. Just go. Just go. Because it mat as somebody who just buried my father, mm -hmm. it matters. It matters. I mean, there so was matters. a moment... At the burial, when I, my whole family sat down by the graveside because we did not want to leave him. We were like, we, we were so, we were so, we were just so like close. We were so close as a family and we didn't want to be far from him. And he was in the earth and we placed earth. And then we just sat down by the graveside and I looked up and there was this line of people, hundreds of people who made their way out to Simi Valley in 103 degree weather so that they could bury my father with their bare hands. I mean, placing earth on his coffin. And I just felt like I am so grateful. It mattered that they were there. So go to the funeral. Just translate the big idea into an immediate action. The next time there's a funeral, just go. Just go. And if you can't go, call. Don't avoid the person. Don't retreat from the person's pain. When you hear that someone's struggling, just pick up the phone and say, hey, I love you. I know this has been a rough time. I'm here. And when you get really good at this, when, and I'm saying when you get good at this, when you get comfortable with the idea that there's a rule, it's a soul building rule, I'm going. Yes. Then there's never any question or hesitancy. That's right. And That's you, right. And you don't waste any energy on that. You go, you, you do what you need to do for the That's person right. you love. That's right. You used the word mitzvah earlier. I mean, that's literally what a mitzvah is. It's like there's an assumption, there's an expectation of you that you will be there. So then you're just there. And I think that that, I think that that is such a powerful, um, and, and resonant idea. Um, I'll give you one more, um, before we go, which is, um, my, one of my dearest friends lost her beloved partner. Um, he had a terrible lung cancer. It was very fast and really awful. And she was grieving him. And she realized that the reason that she loved him was because he was full of joy. 
that he just was a beautiful light in this world. And he was always laughing and telling stories and telling jokes. And he made other people feel light in this world. And so she didn't want to grieve in only a heavy way. She wanted to grieve with joy. And so she literally sets an alarm for 18 minutes every day because in, in Jewish numbers, 18 means life. And she sets the clock for 18 minutes and she forced herself through the entire first year of mourning to do something that would fill her with joy, eat a chocolate cake, you know, dance in her apartment, something that would fill her with joy. And that's a practice that I started taking on in solidarity with her. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not grieving her partner in the same way, but can I also bring 18 minutes of joy into my life a day? I can. So now I do (laughs) and it helps. So these are some of the ways. Wow. 18 minutes. That's another. Well, you know, you've made this uh, accessible to us. You have made the idea of soul building essential, but also fun. And also the, the, the feeling that you're going to get from building your soul um, and it's not about feelings, though. It's actually about the substantial journey of the soul mm. as we age and go through life and inevitably end up on the other side. Right. You, you've given us a path, Rabbi Shan. You, you've given us this path to try these tools because what you're saying to us is that If there is consistency and faith and a determination to find, to deepen your soul, you could do it. You can do it and be better for it. And then the world becomes better for it. That's right. That's right. Because it's not only enhancing my spiritual life, it's actually helping us heal as a society. I hope that this week's episode of You Are What You Read illuminated a path for you. The Amen Effect by Rabbi Sharon Browse was our conversation topic, and I highly recommend get the book and give it to somebody who's struggling or suffering. But I also think it would make a great birthday gift or, or give it to somebody who's getting married. Because as Rabbi explained in the, in the podcast, those moments of joy and the celebrations are just as important as being one with people when they're suffering. No matter what your spiritual background is, whether you're a believer, whether you're like my friends from back home and you're Christian, whether you're Roman Catholic, Muslim, it doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome to this particular table and these particular ancient traditions. I encourage you to read The Amen Effect. And you know what? Think about human connectedness with everybody around you and those different from us. And isn't it true we can always find one another? in new places and new worlds when we read. We're going to be back next week with more conversations, interesting, enlightening conversations. So be sure to follow this podcast, leave your reviews, and continue writing to us. We love to hear your thoughts. In fact, we found Rabbi Sharon because you wrote to us, and we're forever changed by that. You can follow us on socials at You Are What You Read podcast for more updates and giveaways. Thank you for listening, and always, always thank you for reading.